This third week of Advent is a time to listen to the prophecies of God in anticipation of the branch from the stump of Jesse to come into our world once again. We hang the Solomon ornament and ask God for a discerning heart to be able to hear his prophecies and discern how we are to live in preparation for his Messiah. We hang the Elijah ornament to acknowledge that idol worship is still present and that we must not reject God's prophet, but to embrace his warning to destroy all idols in preparation for God's anointed one. We hang the Isaiah ornament as a reminder that God's anointed one is the suffering servant. We hang the Jeremiah ornament as a reminder that God has created a new covenant and has written his laws on the hearts of his people by the work of his spirit. We hang the Habakkuk ornament in recognition that God is God and though evil is still present, that we will wait faithfully for our God to redeem us. We hang the Nehemiah ornament to symbolize the return from exile and that all people desire and hope for God's anointed one to come and he will be the God of all. We hang the anticipation ornament as a symbol of all those who are God's faithful ones who are preparing the way for the Lord's return. Let's give uh, Jared and Christine and Reese a round of applause this morning for helping us with our Jesse tree. We, uh, we have a special guest here this morning, um, and uh, I wanted to introduce some of you to him. Many of you know him very well. Um, this is uh, Pastor Jeff Cranston from Low Country Community Church, who's uh, here preaching this morning. And um, Jeff and I have known each other, I figured it out, for 25 years, which makes me kind of old, old yeah. and you older. But anyway, um, <laughs> this is the way you honor your mentor yes, right sir. here. Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, I just wanted to uh, introduce you to him this morning. Um, I have known Jeff for 25 years. He's um, a, a spiritual dad in, in a lot of ways to me, discipled me as, as a kid, as a teenager. And um, a few years ago, he called Cynthia and I when we, when we were in New York ministering there and um, ask if we would pray about and consider moving here to start uh, a new work on Hilton Head Island. And um, here we are uh, almost six years later. Mm -hmm. And um, man, I want to thank you for your influence, for your vision, um, for um, your investment um, in what God is doing here at Hilton Head Island Community Church. And uh, I wanted to thank you personally. And uh, Hilton Head Island Community Church wants to thank you. We have a picture in there. You can see it on the screens. This is our opening day uh, and uh, in the new building, and so uh, we much. wanted to uh, thank you by giving you a picture Amen. of that and just a note from us. Thank so, you very much. Why don't we give Jeff a round of applause awesome. this morning. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Thanks. If I'd have known I was going to get a gift, I would have come a lot sooner. And uh, Well, it's great to be back with you. The last time I was with you, you were in that other place with the low ceiling. How many of you were in that church? Yeah, most but not all. Um, so this is, this is wonderful. As I, I walked in uh, this morning, I immediately remembered the balcony uh, up here. It's not really a balcony. It was a deck, but um, we were calling it a balcony then, and uh, it's just been great to see what God has done and is doing uh, right here. So it's a real privilege. I was Thinking back, it was the second Sunday of September, 
2006 when we publicly announced for the first time that we were going to uh, start a campus back on Hilton Head Island. Um, your sister church, Low Country Community Church, or Mother Church, or Starting Church, or I don't know what the terminology is, but uh, we started here in 1994 called the Church at Hilton Head. Some of you in this room were in that church then. That's the church that I came to pastor, and it's since morphed into Low Country and Hilton Head Island Community Church. And so uh, it's just a real thrill uh, to be here and see a, a dream and a vision. Uh, come to fruition, and I know you're used to it for six months already, but this is a first for me, so pretty cool. All right, if you have your Bible, open it up to Zephaniah. Did that catch you off guard? Yeah, you've never heard anybody say that before, have you? That's like saying, turn to Song of Solomon. Ah, I've never heard anybody say that. If you uh, don't know where Zephaniah is, you go to uh, Matthew, take a left, uh, four books, and uh, this is a message on joy, which seems out of place, quite frankly, in light of what happened in Connecticut. Uh, of all the things to be talking about this morning, joy just doesn't seem to be one of the things we ought to be talking about because, you know, Ecclesiastes says there's a time for joy and there's a time for, for mourning and there's a time for laughing and a time for weeping. It seems like a time for laughing, or I mean for weeping and mourning, not laughing and joy. But the more I thought about it, the more I think this does have everything to do with uh, what took place this week in our, in our nation and how our nation's been rocked by this evil acts of one madman, really. Um, because joy's not happiness. And joy is really not based at all on circumstances. Joy goes way, way deeper than that. So let's begin, and uh, we'll take a look at Zephaniah. This is our, our text for uh, your Advent series called Anticipate. As we look and we anticipate the prophecy of the coming of Christ, and uh, as we begin, let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. Father, thanks for our time together. Thank you that uh, you meet with us, that you love us, that you care for us, that uh, you have us in mind. Just watching that video a few moments ago saying he came for everybody, he came for all, and then it said he came for you. And uh, that is so, so true. Help us to personalize uh, your message to us today. This is not generic, this is personal. Uh, in that, Jesus, you came for every one of us individually. Help us to rejoice in that truth. In spite of circumstances, in spite of news, in spite of life, may we find joy. Underlying foundational joy is our prayer in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Well, life's filled with good news and bad news. Have you ever had somebody say to you, I've got some good news and some bad news, which do you want first? What do you say? Which do you want first, good news or bad news? Yeah, I want, I want bad news first because I, I'm, I, I, I have hopes that the good news will be so good that it won't make the bad news seem so bad. Does that make sense? It's like the doctor said to his patient, I have some good news and some bad news. Which do you want first? The patient said, I'd, I'd like the good news first, doc. Doctor said, the good news is that they're naming a disease after you. That's, <laughs> that's as good as they get, folks. That's as good as they get. Um, 
Or good news, bad news, I, this is a story I love about a preacher, and he's told by his doctor, you only have a few weeks left to live. He goes home and he tells his wife that, and she says, honey, if there's anything I can do to make you happy in these final weeks, please tell me. And the preacher says, well, you know, dear, there's that box, that secret box in the kitchen that you've had for years, and you've said you never wanted me to open it as long as you were alive. But now that I'm going home to be with the Lord, why don't you show me what's in that secret box of yours. And so the preacher's wife got the box out and she opened the lid and it contained $10,000 and three eggs. He says, what are the eggs in the box for? She says, well, every time your sermon was really, really bad, I put an egg in the box. Now he'd been preaching for 40 some years and he started to feel very proud of himself. That sort of warmed his soul, 40 years, three eggs, that's a pretty good deal. He goes, what about the $10,000? She said, every time I got a dozen, I sold them. <laughs> Good news, bad news, you see. Remember that. You'll tell that this week. Um, but it's really easy to come to the conclusion that whenever you read the prophets, especially, you know, they're, they're called major prophets and minor prophets. The minor prophets are just the shorter books. They're, they weren't really minor people with minor messages. The books are just shorter. Like Zephaniah, three chapters, that's it. Uh, it. Therefore, he's called a minor prophet. But it's really easy to think that as you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, that it's only bad news. And quite frankly, Zephaniah is an argument for that because out of the three chapters, two and a half of the three chapters are bad news. Woe are you. I mean, there's, there's woes and there are wherefores and there's judgment and there's this is coming upon you, and that's coming upon you, and it, it can be pretty bad, but tucked into some incredibly bad news, you see God's gracious hand reaching out to his people with some even greater good news, and there's, there's joy to be had and joy to be known as we anticipate the coming king, and that's what the prophets were talking about, and in the midst of all of the bad stuff Zephaniah, among other prophets, said, but there is a king coming. There is love coming from God in the person of his Messiah, of his son, of the Lord Jesus. And if there's a single word that describes what Christmas is about, it might be the word joy. I mean, our Christmas carols are filled with the, uh, the word joy, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Oh, come all ye faithful joyful. Okay, here's, here's the deal. When I do this, then you, you answer, okay? And if you don't know the answer, say Jesus, because this is church, and that usually you can't be wrong. Okay, so, oh, come all you faithful, joyful and triumphant. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? That, that was a hard one. Good Christian men. Yes, yeah, somebody said Jesus. Good, okay. Good Christian men. Rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumphs of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. We see this strain of joy as the Messiah is announced. Well, let me ask you. You don't need to raise your hand, but do you feel joyful this morning? I guess one of the things I want to remind us of that Joy's not necessarily there if I feel it or not. Does that make sense? So we, we, we've got this wrong-headed notion that joy 
is based upon circumstances. Joy is like happiness. Uh, when things are going right, I feel joyful, and when things are not going right, I don't feel joyful. That's not joy. That's not what it is about. Joy is an underlayment. Joy is foundational. Joy is not touched by circumstances. Joy is there whether things are in the realm of bad news or whether they're in the realm of good news. Joy is untouched by it. Joy is what pervades and permeates your soul. Joy comes from Christ in you. And that's not touched by my circumstances or really my emotions don't wane regarding joy. It's there or it's not there. But I hope it's there for you. I hope it's there for you. Hope you don't have the wrong idea about joy. You can't find joy going from party to party or by frantically racing through the shops this week, buying and buying and buying. In fact, going shopping this week is an excellent way to kill your joy. <laughs> Christmas joy comes from the announcement with angelic host proclaiming that Christ is born in Bethlehem. A Savior today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. William Willimon, who's been the dean of the chapel at Duke University, said this, Christmas is a delightful disruption of the way things normally go. I like that. Christmas is a delightful dis disruption of the way things normally go. And I think that term delightful disruption catches the spirit of Luke 2. One moment you're tending sheep in the middle of the night, and the next you're being scared out of your wits by an angelic choir. I don't know how delightful that was for the shepherds, but it was a disruption into the norm. And that angel came with good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. The angels were proclaiming what the prophets had been foretelling for thousands of years. Zephaniah says it. He talks about it. So let's, let's just look at what, what he says. So if, hopefully you found it in your Bible. If not, if you're on your smart device, then all you have to do is press and tap, and that's a whole lot easier. You know, when people first started using those at church, I would look out like I am among with you, and I would see glows on their faces. And I thought, wow, you know, the Spirit of God is really on them. And it, it was just an iPod, so, or an iPad. So anyway, this, this, this poor prophet, Zephaniah, he's not only hard to find, but he often gets ignored or confused with Zechariah. This is Zephaniah. He ministered to, during the time of Josiah. Josiah became king of Judah when he was eight years old. They pulled him out of a, out of a third grade math class and said, all right, you're, you're now the king. And he instituted reforms. Revival happened under Josiah's reign. He brought his people back to God, and most Bible scholars agree that Zephaniah was really instrumental in influencing Josiah's spiritual life so that he influenced the spiritual life of God's people. There's quite a bit of bad news in Zephaniah. In chapter 1 alone, he says, he's, he's talking about you know, what the word of the Lord is saying. Verse 2, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Okay, bad news. Um, verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. And then verse 12 of chapter 1, God says, here's what I think of the spiritually stagnant and the spiritually smug. 
At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. Bad news, man. It's hard to hear. And the prophet is talking about approaching judgments in the day of the Lord. But, but, these approaching judgments, God dealing with sin among his people, wasn't so much to drive his people to despair. It was to drive his people away from their sin and back toward him. Not to frighten them out of their wits, but to frighten them out of their sins. But no matter how depressing the message, it's never the final word of God to his people. Aren't you glad to know that? That God's words to us of judgment and doom and gloom are not God's final words because with those comes this, but I'm going to send one who will save his people from their sins. But there's coming a day when my people will return to me. And we know now, looking back on it, that God has sent Christ to save us. In chapter 2, verse 3, Zephaniah says, return to God before it's too late. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. For the remainder of the time, I want to look not in chapter 1, not in chapter 2, but in chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, as I said, two and a half out of the three chapters have bad news. But the latter half of chapter 3 contains some great news. And the prophet's looking ahead as we anticipate the prophecy, as we realize that the coming day of the Lord, in other words, the day when, when Christ is coming, this is a day of celebration for the people of God. It's a day of joy for the people of God. And my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that when we leave here, you either have it, have reclaimed it, or reminded yourself of it, that the joy that needs to pervade and permeate our lives is not based on what's in the newspaper. It's not based on what we hear and see on television. It's based upon what Christ has done in us and the fact that Jesus Christ has come to reside among his people. That overrides everything else. There's a verse in chapter 3. It's been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. So I want to look at beginning in verse 14. And read through verse 20, but I want to, when we get to verse 17, I want you to highlight it in however way you want to highlight it. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Here we go. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feast I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. 
I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Verse 17. Now, I just read it, but I want you to hear it again through a couple of different translations. And I want you to sit there, and I want you to just, if you would, allow the word of God here to just wash over you, to envelop you. Just take, a, just take it in like you're taking in a deep breath and hear what God is saying to us because it is so personal. You know, we, we have this idea sometimes that God's this cosmic killjoy, that God's just sitting up in heaven waiting for us to do something wrong. No, that's Satan who's sitting around waiting for us to do something wrong. He's the accuser of the brethren. But it's like we have this idea that God's up there and when we do something wrong, it's like, aha, I got him. I got her. I knew that guy was a loser. I knew she would never be able to fulfill that promise. I knew she'd never be able or he'd never be able to do that thing. That's not how God views you. And verse 17 tells us so particularly with such great detail of how he thinks about you. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. For the Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty Savior. He will delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with songs. The English Standard Version says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The message says, your God is present among you, a strong warrior there to save you. Happy to have you back. He'll calm you with his love and delight you with his songs. The Amplified Version says, the Lord your God is in the midst of you, a mighty one, a savior. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest and in his love, he will be silent and make no mention of past sins or even recall them. He will exalt over you with singing. There's an outline in your worship folder. It'll be up on the screens. Let's just walk through this. There's five things that just jump out of verse 17. It's broken down into five ways. Let's just look at these five ways, five things that I think every one of us, as we anticipate the prophecy, as we realize the coming of Christ is a day of great celebration and joy for God's people. And I want to challenge you not to think of it in terms, I mean, it's true but not to think of it just in terms of Jesus coming for the world. I I challenge you this morning to think of it in terms of what Jesus Christ has come and done for you. Now, we don't want to make this all about us because it's not all about us. But in a sense, out of verse 17, the way that God looks at you, it is about you in this sense. So let's just take a look at it. You ready? Ready. All right. Here's the first thing, and these are, um, these are just cool. First thing, verse 17 tells us, number one, God's presence. God's presence. God is with you. Now, if you've come to church for any period of time, that's, that's not new to you, right? You know that. What's the word Emmanuel mean? God 
with us. That's old news. I want to remind you that, oh, I don't know, two or three billion people maybe on the planet have never heard that in their lives. There are millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people that don't know that Christ has come, that do not know there is one called Emmanuel, and it is God with us. But he says in verse 17, he says, God, the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is with you. When you feel alone or abandoned, the Lord your God is with you. Maybe this is your first Christmas without that loved one. Then the Lord your God is with you. Maybe this is the first Christmas since you become unemployed or underemployed. The Lord your God is with you. Maybe this is your first Christmas since that happened, whatever that is. The Lord your God is with you. You may feel abandoned. You may feel alone. You may feel orphaned. But this verse reminds us that the Lord your God. And do you notice what it says here? He says the Lord your God is with you. A lot of the prophets say the Lord your God is with us. But for some reason, God wanted Zephaniah to say, the Lord your God is with you. He personalizes it. Forgive me for being rude and pointing at you, but I want you to get that. The Lord your God is with you. That's pretty cool. God's not just walk, watching you. God's walking with you through life. All the hurt, he knows it. The pain, he knows it. He's not just near you. He's in the midst of whatever you're in the midst of right now. I love the words of Jesus in John 14. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And if you know Jesus Christ personally today, he promises to be your constant companion. God's presence, God is with you. Here's the second thing verse 17 tells us about God's power. And God's power reminds us that God is for you. He is mighty to save. He's a mighty warrior. He overcomes all odds to defeat the enemy so we can be free. And the word save in this Hebrew is stated or written with an emphatic oomph. You know what oomph is? Mm. Emphasis. He is mighty to save. God is powerful, and God is mighty, and God is for you. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then Romans 8 reminds us, if this God is for us, what? Who can be against us? The obvious question to me in light of the events of this week is if God is all-powerful, why didn't he stop what happened in that elementary school? You better have an answer for that. Not just for other people, but for yourself. How do you deal with that? 
Is God all-powerful? Yes, we know that. Could he have stopped that? Yes, he could have. But it happened. And what it reminds us of is this. God's given us a free will. And people choose evil. And Satan is real. And demonic activity is real. And hell is real. And if you don't believe that, open your eyes. But it also reminds us that there is one who has come to save us from all of that garbage and all of that sin. And although God didn't stop that incident happening two days ago, God will win in the long run. Satan will win some battles along the way. We know that. But he doesn't win the war. Read the end of the Bible. We have a Bible Institute that we, we have at Low Country, and we just finished the last semester this week, and we studied prophecy. 31 people graduated out of that class. And every, every one of them, I asked them, I said, how many of you now believe or hope that Jesus is going to come back before the seven-year tribulation? All 31 hands went up. <laughs> they didn't all believe that coming in. But when you see what's coming... Oh, my goodness. But here's what we got. Christ wins. Christ wins. Christ wins. And God says, I'm your mighty warrior. I will battle for you. I will take on your enemies, and I will defeat them. Sometimes it doesn't happen on our timetable, but eventually, at the end of the day, God wins. Somebody ought to say amen to that. He wins. Thirdly, okay, he says, God's presence, he's with you. God's power, God's for you because he's mighty to save. Thirdly, God's pleasure. Now here, this is going to, um, some of you don't have any idea of this. Some of you might not even agree with this. Some of you might not know anything about this. Or I've never thought of it like this. In that case, this is going to be exciting for you. God's pleasure. God delights in you. God delights in you. You say, well, I don't really like myself that much. God loves you. You say, well, some, you know, other people don't like me that much. Yeah, I know, but God loves you. <laughs> and you know there's a difference. You know, you can, like, you, you can love somebody, you know, as a Christian, well, I, I, you say, I love him or I love her, but I don't really like him. You know what I'm saying? Some of you are sitting next to those people right now. No, I'm only kidding. That, that got a little uncomfortable very quickly, didn't it? Um, but, you know, we can love people while I'm command. I got to love you, but I don't really like you, you know? It's like one guy said, I'll cry at your funeral, but I don't want to go on vacation with you. God not only loves you, God likes you. He, as a matter of fact, he delights in you. He will take great delight in you. The word delight means to be bright and cheerful. And some of us think that God frowns when he thinks of us. Instead of glaring at you, God is glad he made you. The look across your heavenly father's face when he thinks of you is one of delight 
and cheer and it's bright and it's joy. Whenever he thinks of you, it's a good thought. Some of you have heard me say this, but some years ago I was with my mentor, Robbie Zacharias. You may have heard of him. You may have not heard of him. It doesn't matter for this story. We were in South Africa, beautiful nation. We were in Cape Town, and we had driven out to a place called, I think it's called Cape Point or something like that. It's the bottom of Africa. There's a lighthouse there. And as you stand up, you, you climb up all of these steps. As a matter of fact, down in the parking lot, we parked in the van that we were riding in, went into a shop to buy a Coke, and I walked up to the window. I had on sunglasses, and uh, the lady was waiting on me through the window, and all of a sudden she looked at me, stepped back, and slammed the window shut. That happens to me not often, but, you know. <laughs> I went, what in the world? And I looked right here. There was a big monkey. I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he reached out, snatched the sunglasses off my face. I haven't seen him or the glasses since. <laughs> so after that harrowing experience, we decided to walk up 500 steps to the lighthouse. And on your left, it's just a stunning view because on your left is the Indian Ocean, and on your right is the Atlantic. They kind of meet there. And I remember the Atlantic was gray and sort of cold-looking, and the Indian Ocean was green and beautiful, and they were sort of crashing together there. And it's, it's really one of the beauty spots on the planet. Cape Town itself is the most beautiful city I've ever been in. But to stand at the bottom, just think, we were standing at the bottom of Africa. That, that was pretty cool to me. And then there we were with this vista of two oceans to our left and to our right. That was pretty incredible. And you know what thoughts came to our minds? Boy, we wish... Darlene and Margie were here with us. And so we reached into our pockets and we took out a South African Rand coin and we carved our wives' initials on the rocks at Cape Point. Yes, we defaced South African property. <laughs> but when we thought about our wives, it brought us joy. In light of what we were seeing, there was still someone who... Phew, what kind of a thing are you running here, man? <laughs> Getting attacked? I think that was a bat. I'm not sure. Wow. Can we make that happen again in the second service? That'd be great. All right. But in, in, in light of that, all that beauty, we had them on our minds. When God looks at you, the Bible says he delights in you. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, he might delight in her, or he might delight in him, but he doesn't delight in me. <clears throat> At that point, you've got to come face to face with this. You're wrong. You're wrong. You can't be more wrong. God himself says, I delight in you. The person he's talking about is the person in your mirror. He says, I delight in you. Max Licato captures this thought well. He said, God is for you. If he had a calendar, your birth date would be circled. If he drove a car, your name would be on his bumper. If there's a tree in heaven, he's carved your name in the bark. Fourthly, 
God's peace. God calms you. The Bible says he will quiet you with his love. The New American Standard puts it this way, he will be quiet in his love. But most often the love of the Lord is expressed as a loyal love, stressing God's unconditional commitment to us. The word love, however, is a little bit, it has a little bit of a, um, I don't know, it's just a little bit of a nuance, different. This word love, he will, he will quiet you with his love. That word, as it's used here, means to be united. It's used elsewhere in scripture. It describes Jacob's passionate love for Rachel. It's talked, it's used, that same word used to describe the fond love Jacob had for Joseph. It's the same word used to describe Jonathan's deep friendship, a love with David. Elsewhere in scripture, it's used with a wedding imagery. But he, he says, I'm, I'm just going to quiet you with my love. Some of us, don't we? We need to be quieted. We live kind of crazy lives, hectic lives. In his book, Margin, Dr. Richard Swenson says in the 1860s, the average American slept 12 hours a night. How many hours a night are you sleeping? I don't know if you're like me. I went to sleep about 10.30. I was up at 1.09. I was awake again at 3.39, and I was up for good at about 5.55. That's pretty much normal. But most of us sleep now. You know the average American sleeps now six and a half hours a night because we live crazy lives. Now, there's a thing called electricity that's made a difference. The lights are on, but what a frantic life we lead. Here, there, everywhere, your diary is full, your calendar is full, your, I mean, your life is full. And God comes along and says, in the midst of your hurried and harried and frantic life, I will quiet you with my love, a uniting together with you, because I delight in you, and I go to bat for you, and I love you. And then lastly, and we'll wrap it up right here, is God's praise. Number four is God's praise. God celebrates you. Now, if you think the delight part was kind of crazy, this goes even further. God celebrates you. The Bible says he will rejoice over you with singing. And God moves from the quiet rest of being in relationship with us to exuberant rejoicing. And the Hebrew word, I love this, he will rejoice over you with singing. The word rejoice means to spin around with, in joy with great gladness and glee. To spin around in joy with great gladness and glee. Have you ever seen Snoopy dance? <laughs> he got it and he just, shh, the Snoopy dance. That's what I picture, to spin around in joy with great gladness and glee. And God says, when I think of you, I rejoice over you that way with singing. We have three daughters there. Oh, if I do this now, I'm going to get it wrong. Help me. My wife is here. 27, 25, and 20. Yes? Nailed it. 
That was such a guess. No, it wasn't a guess, but 27, 25, and 20. Can't do this anymore, but when they were young, and you do it with little kids, you just grab them and you spin around, and their heads are, you know, you know they, they get a rush, and they giggle, and they laugh, and they love it, and you put them down, and what do they say? Do it again. Do it again. I've got a little granddaughter named Callie, about 17, 16 months old. I grab her, spin her around. She loves it. There's a sense of that in what God's saying. It, it just brings joy. It just brings happiness. I'll do it with Callie. I'll get, you know, I, I could get a headache from doing it, but as long as she still wants more, I'll, I'll keep doing it. And God says, I, I spin around in joy and delightful gladness and glee over you. Wow. Jared Anderson wrote a cool song called Amazed. And one of the lines in the lyrics say, you dance over me while I'm unaware. You sing all around, but I never hear the sound. God's doing that for us. My time is up. But I want you so much to grab a hold of that this Christmas. To understand that he's singing over you. He's celebrating you. He's calming you. He's delighting in you. He's for you. He's with you. He looks at you and says, you know what? There's no one like you. So much so. And Christmas reminds us of this. I've sent my one and only son that whosoever believes in him should never perish but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Just as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, would you hear these words? Hear this truth and just allow them to soak into your heart. The eternal, self-existent God, the God who is three in one, he who dwells in the center of your being is a powerful and valiant warrior. He has come to set you free. He has come to keep you safe. He has come to bring you victory. He beams with exceeding joy and takes pleasure in your presence. He has engraved a place for himself in you and there he quietly rests in his love and affection for you. He can't contain himself at the thought of you and with the greatest of joy spins around wildly in anticipation over you. In fact, he shouts and sings in triumph joyfully proclaiming the gladness of his heart in a song of rejoicing all because of you. My friend, I think our challenge today is to say, okay, God, I believe I am who you say I am. I'll stop believing lies of the enemy. I'll stop believing falsehoods. I choose to believe truth. And you say this is true about me. Can you make that your prayer to God today? Maybe you have been not anticipating the joy of Christmas. You felt like it's coming as an impending, gloomy 
day of discouragement and despondency and depression. The choice is yours. But God's teaching to us today that in spite, in spite of what might be happening or what has happened, we can find joy because it's rooted and based in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we live our lives not only to bring you joy, but to know joy. We make this our prayer in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.